Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I do all my shopping there with Mary and Ethel. A Mary and Ethel who? Mary Schwartz and Ethel Hotchkiss. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation. There's no business like show business, like no business I know. The podcast that tells the remarkable story of the Broadway musical and the immigrant, Jewish, queer, and black artist who invented it. My guest today is the prolific and award-winning book writer and lyricist Stephen Cole, who joins me today to talk about his new novel, which is titled Mary and Ethel and Mikey Who? It's a terrific book, both wildly funny and very moving. And as you will hear, at times it feels like he wrote it especially for me and the fans of this podcast. And speaking of the fans of this podcast, as always, I want to thank all of our patron club members for their generous support. With a special shout out today to Jeffrey Block and Larry Spinelli. If you would like to help support the creation of this podcast, stay tuned to the end of the episode where there'll be information about how you too can become a patron. Here we go. Welcome, Stephen Cole. It's a great pleasure to have you today as a guest on Broadway Nation to talk about your new book, Mary and Ethel and Mikey Who. So happy to be here. Thank you, David. This is only the second novel I've ever featured on the podcast because it's, of course, a Broadway history podcast. But this book, like Laura Franco's book, who was the last novelist I had on the show, is filled with Broadway history. So it's very, very appropriate. Yes, it's interesting. And she just read my book, too, and heartily endorsed it, which was lovely. She's such a stickler for history, and so am I. Absolutely. Both of those books I enjoyed so much because of that, because as you were reading it, you thought they're not screwing around here. This is actually what happened. And they've been able to create an incredible fictional story out of all those real pieces. Thank you. Yeah, it really was funny. When I first started out writing this, I wanted it to be fiction, but it seemed too much like nonfiction because (laughs) it did not have Mikey originally. And so it was about Ethel and Mary and everything was true, except that the dialogue and the letters and things like that were 
were my invention. So I had to find a way to make sure that the reader knew that it was a novel. So let's start there for people who have not read the book yet. How do you describe this book? What happens in Mary and Ethel and Mikey Who? Well, let's see. I describe it as a historical, theatrical, time travel, coming of age novel. Many, many hyphens. Basically, it is about all of us, that great theater nerd who grew up loving Broadway and especially Merman and Martin. And Mikey is Michael Marvin Minkus from Brooklyn, New York. And he lives in his mother's basement at 25 years old. So we already know there are problems there. He hears from his mother who read in the National Enquirer, it's 1983, that Ethel Merman is very ill with a brain tumor. And he immediately takes action and gets on the subway and goes to visit her, even though he has never met her before, except to have her sign a record at Corvettes. He gets into the apartment and Mary Martin is there visiting her. And while Mary is in the room with Ethel, who we don't see yet, Mikey wanders into one of her walk-in closets and comes out the other end in 1939 at the Imperial Theater, the same night that Ethel and Mary first met. So that's basically the premise of the book. And it follows Mikey through time, through all the times that Ethel and Mary's paths crossed. But he also affects history because he grows as it grows. He becomes a press agent. He becomes a personal assistant. He writes the 1960 Tony Awards. And so he's around for a lot of the history of the Golden Age, but especially, I always say, the Golden Age of Mary and Ethel, which is from 39 to 70. Then he realizes after he finds his own self at 12 years old and fixes a little of what happened then that it's time to go home as all good stories have to end. This is not really a time travel novel. It's more like an Alice in Wonderland adventure in a way, what I came away from. Yeah, I would say he does travel through time, but it's not explained. It's not scientific. I wouldn't call it a science fiction novel. It is through a portal like Alice in Wonderland. He finds a way without knowing it's there, falls into another world and keeps falling into other time frames, guided by my my favorite character in the piece, Mary Too. Did you enjoy her? <laughs> I did indeed. And that's, again, the sort of analogy to Alice in Wonderland. She's a very surreal character, not tied into reality the way Mary and Ethel actually are. I and mean, most of the other figures, she's existing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but she's existing outside of the reality of either of the world. I think that's true. Even though she does exist in those time frames, they don't realize, just as they don't realize that Mikey is the same Mike, Michael, Marvin, whatever name he chooses to be in that time. And Mary, too, knows a lot more than anybody else and helps him get from one place to the other. She was a real person. Mary, too, was a real person. I only knew her for one hour because Mary, too, was, in fact, Ethel Merman's nurse when she was ill, when she had the brain tumor, and when I went to visit her. And I remember Ethel saying, I call her Mary too, just to make sure she, I don't confuse her with Mary Martin. <laughs> and I saved that all these years. And she was just a nurse at that time. But I thought, wow, what an interesting thing that there's another Mary, a mirror image who could take him through this, who knows a lot more. And it just, it grew as it grew. I enjoyed her a lot. Yeah, I doubt she's alive now. But then again, she was around when Sophie Tucker was 
was uh, on Broadway. (laughs) And that part of it is true as well? She really did work for Sophie Tucker? Is that your invention? No, that's my invention. The only part of Mary Two was that she took care of Ethel during the brain tumor time. So you've opened this door now and you knew Mary and Ethel. You knew them personally. Let's talk about that. How did that happen? How did you come to know both Mary Martin and Ethel Merman? Well, we'd start with Ethel Merman. Just like for Mikey, she's kind of the dominant star that he loved first. And that's how I was. And I was the kid who had all the show records. I belonged to the RCA Record Club. So you couldn't get a Columbia record at the RCA Record Club. So I never had the original cast album of Gypsy. I had the movie soundtrack of Gypsy with Roz Russell, who really was sung by Lisa Kirk. So when I first heard a radio broadcast, and that's why radio and podcasts are so important, I heard Ethel singing Rose's Turn from the cast album, and and my head blew off. (laughs) I was about 11. Oh, I, I became a huge fan then. So years go by, and I had been an actor. I retired at 21 because I wasn't getting kid parts anymore. And before I became a writer, I thought, oh, I'll be a producer. Easy, right? Easy to produce. You know that, David. But I wanted to produce Ethel Merman's Symphony Orchestra concert on cable TV. And at that time, cable TV was just happening. It was narrow casting. And there was a, a network called CBS Cable that showed these incredible high-profile People wore tuxedos to introduce them. (laughs) It was wonderful. And so I went to see Ethel in a concert in the Bronx. And the next day I called her manager, Bob Gardner. His number was in the program. And I said, I want to produce Ethel Merman in concert on a cable TV show. And he said, okay, which was so bizarre. (laughs) And he said, next year, she's going to be playing Carnegie Hall. You have a year to get this together. And I had some friends. Remember, I'm in my early 20s now. What year is this, approximately? Oh, this would have been, she did Carnegie Hall, I think, in 81. Okay. So it was about 1980. I had some friends who were in TV and they helped me. I wrote a proposal. They helped me with a budget. And they had the idea that to get to CBS Cable, the best way to do it is through the back door to a sponsor. I knew they had a Kraft Music Hall and Kraft Cheese was held by J. Walter Thompson, I think was the agency. And I sent off my proposal and my letter. And one night the phone rang and it was the president of J. Walter Thompson (laughs) saying, we love the idea, you can go into CBS Cable and say, we'll sponsor it. Once again, my head Unbelievable. And so we went in, had meetings at CBS Cable with my friends who knew more about the whole thing about budgeting. And they said, yes, go for it. And so I contacted Anna Sasenko, who was producing the concert at Carnegie Hall. And it all started rolling. Time, 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 a few months go by and CBS Cable goes under. Uh And there's no more CBS Cable. And so we scurry around going to HBO and Showtime and places like that, and none of them had any interest in Ethel Merman. I was a little a little disappointed. But I, meanwhile, I had been friends with Bob Gardner, her manager, for all these months, and he came to my apartment and saw my rarest videos in those days on VHS, and I had some really rare stuff then that's now on YouTube. He told her, and he invited me to Carnegie Hall, gave me two great seats. We went backstage, and the first thing out of her mouth was, I'm coming to your house. 
house. Two days later, a taxi rolled up with her and her son, and they came to my apartment on 9th Avenue in Chelsea, and I showed her all these videos. I also made dinner for her. I made chicken. And she said, oh, this food is better than Elaine's and much bigger portions. (laughs) (laughs) And we bonded almost immediately. And she talked about herself. She'd point to herself on the screen and say things like, you see me there? I wasn't wearing a bra. If I did that now, they'd hit the floor. And that was Ethel. She began then to bring all of her friends to my apartment for the next two years to these parties every few months. And I would show all the videos and she would talk about herself and then take us all to dinner. It was a blast. She considered me the guy who knew more about her career than she knew. So that's how that happened. We were close in that way, not as colleagues. I never did produce that show. She didn't know me as a writer. And through that, through Bob Gardner again, I met Mary Martin because he tried to get her to do the same kind of symphony concerts. And she then started to depend on me to find videos of her. And she called me up one day and said from Palm Springs, I'd love to see my first movie, The Great Victor Herbert. And I said, well, I don't have it. And she said, well, maybe my co-star Alan Jones has it. Here's his phone number. So (laughs) I called up Alan Jones, the great Alan Jones. And he said, hello. And I said, yeah, Mary Martin told me and she, Mary, I love Mary. Sure, I've got it on VHS. He sent it to me. I sent it to her. She never could call him. And that was kind of the relationship with Mary. And we had letters and phone calls. It wasn't as warm as with Ethel because I didn't see her as much. That was really how it happened. And I knew them both until they passed away. They both died at 76, coincidentally. Eight years apart. Yeah, I think so. Mary lived longer, but was younger than Ethel. And she said, I remember Mary saying, oh my God, if this could happen to the mighty Merm, what about the rest of us? Because she never thought she would die. And just give us a taste. You said these videos that you used to have, like everybody who used to collect things now, it's everywhere and you're collecting right. out of business in a way. What was one of those that she wanted to see? I had a collection of her, I believe she made six or seven short subjects in 1930 at Paramount Studios in Astoria, Queens. And those were the ones she hadn't seen for over 50 years wow. and was knocked out by seeing herself that young. And she also remarked, she said, oh, my voice was so tinny then. I sound like Ann Miller. She enjoyed watching those. She even went on an early morning talk show the day after I first met her and talked about it. She said, I saw myself from 50 years ago because of a friend. And that was so delightful. So things like that. She did a BBC special that was live from the talk of the town in the mid 60s, which is probably the best version of what her club act was like. And uh, yeah. it's spectacular. And I had that before anybody else had it. The clips from that are really amazing. And that's They're amazing. even today is rarely seen or Correct. it's not distributed as much as you no. would think it would be. No. Yeah. And the only reason it existed was the BBC sent it to all the networks in America and no one picked it up. No ABC, CBS. It's 1964. And so there was one kinescope sitting somewhere in somebody's house and they told me about it. And then many of the kinescopes that I had later on, which were the films of her live TV, she left to me, which was great. And then I donated them to UCLA. I have them on VHS. <laughs> 
<laughs> DVD, yeah. whatever you yeah. want to call it. Yeah, I assume you've digitized them by now, but yeah. I've got everything I need, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I didn't need those films. But the films were spectacular because they were addressed to her in Denver, where she lived with her third husband, Bob Six. So it was wonderful to have them in my hands for a while. And she left them under a friend's bed with instructions to send them to me, which was lovely. Obviously, in that aspect, this is autobiographical, at least to the extent that you knew them both, their voices are in your head, to write them, as Meredith Wilson said about writing The Music Man, he just had to remember. So I assume that was true for you as well. Yeah, I had to remember and imagine what they might be saying. Their voices were easy for me. You're right about that. And Ethel especially, because of what a bawdy, fun dame she was. And Mary in her mock sweetness also. The voices were easy, but there's so much imagination that I had to put in to where they were and when, because I wasn't there in 1941. And I wasn't privy to these conversations that some of which I made up. And the nature of their friendship, which is the center of your book in a way, is their relationship to one another. Is that accurate, do you think? Or is that something you've heightened? Obviously, they're famous for feuding, which you also present as being somewhat trumped up as being sort of a fake feud. Talk a little bit about that. What's the reality of that? Well, that's my assumption, because I always knew about that feud and that one-upsmanship. And I know it was there, but when the chips were down, Mary did knit those little caps for Ethel when she lost her hair. And she was there for her, and she did care. But Ethel loved to joke about Mary. I remember when she was going to be doing that TV show that she was on over easy, Ethel literally said to me, I'm going to be singing with Mary, and I'm not holding back. And I thought, wow. And she didn't. And they both come off not so great in that. And I mentioned that in the book, too. But I was at that wonderful concert where, in fact, you could tell the one in 1977 at the Broadway Theater when they first got together live after 1953. For the Actors Fund? It was was for the Museum of the City of New York. uh, And it was produced by Anna Sasenko. It was one of the most spectacular evenings I ever attended. But Merman mopped up the stage with Mary. Mary hadn't sung in several years, and she was a little cautious with her voice. And Merman had been doing all these concerts, and she just knocked everybody's socks off. And you could tell that Mary was even knocked out by that. So I think there was that friendship, yes, but the rivalry still, maybe Mary wasn't as much a rival as Ethel. I know when they were rehearsing, and this is a part of the book I cut out, actually, I had a section about this. When they were rehearsing, Ethel said to Donald Sadler, who was staging the numbers, I get to stand on the right. He said, okay, okay. And later, Mary came up to him privately and said, she thinks I don't know that that's the star spot, but I don't care. (laughs) That was it. So she tolerated Ethel's pushiness, but they definitely had, I think, ultimately respect for each other. And like many authors, you don't remember what's in your book because you wrote it a while ago. That's actually in your book. Is it really? Oh, yes, because I transplanted it. You put it to to Jerome Robbins. I put it to the Jerome Robbins thing. Thank you very much. Right, Right, because I was writing about the actual event. That was too non-fictional. And that's something that you do. You can use pieces of people's lives that happen 20 years later, but it could happen 20 years earlier. And that was sort of the fun of this. The art of putting it together. Thank you for remembering. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fantastic sequence in the book. 
The book is filled with really great scenes, I have to say. The scene with Jerome Robbins, I found very, very moving, actually, and gripping. So let's talk about that aspect of it. How much of Mikey is Stephen Cole? I can tell you what's not Stephen Cole. My father did not die. My mother was not really that awful. Although she said things like, if I had a poster on the wall of Ethel, she said, you don't even know her. She would say things like that. And later on, I was able to say, guess what? I know her now. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't care. And my mother was not that harridan. I did not live in the basement. But I did love these two ladies, and I did live through the music and the lyrics, and I did get to see Ethel in Hello, Dolly, although not with my father. But there's a lot of him, even down to that. The chapter about the Ford 50th anniversary in 1953, which is also about Jerome Robbins having to be a witness at the House on American Activities Committee. And did those two things actually happen on top of each other like exactly that? happened yes i had no idea that was really it's, interesting it's incredible how he was given a day off to go testify and wow. it really was important and it was important to the tv show it was important to his whole career because he never would have worked in hollywood if he hadn't done what he did name names he did become a pariah you know to many people interestingly enough both ethel and mary were staunch republicans and probably would have applauded it. And Mary was most interested in Robbins in directing her in Peter Pan. They looked out each for their futures, but that really happened. Mikey does have his first sexual experience with Jerome Robbins, which didn't happen. (laughs) to me. (laughs) But one draws on reality for things like that anyway. But he helps to influence all these things. He helps to influence how things are going. And at that point, Leland Hayward, the producer of the Ford show, who also produced South Pacific and Sound of Music and Call Me Madam and Gypsy, really pushes Mikey to help Robbins do the right thing. And the right thing was to name names, which is horrible to think about now. But he was under such pressure from people like Ed Sullivan who were going to out him. You know it would have happened. His career would have been over. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you draw that conundrum very, very well, that impossible situation that he was put in. And we can have whatever feelings we want to have and ever thoughts about what he decided to do. But I think you do a great job of presenting it as a real Sophie's choice for him. Thank you. I I think so too. Also, all during this, he's trying to figure out how to stage Ethel and Mary's great duet. Duets at that time, you know, we used to have choruses behind them and people jumping in and out. And I think it was from him having to simplify his life. He simplifies this staging down to two stools. Mary, let's sing some I thought. Like, uh, I cried for you And I'm forever blowing bubbles And I'm always chasing rainbows which 
then became the way that most stars did their numbers on TV. That became the way to do it. Every Carol Burnett medley that she ever did on her show, those fantastic medleys, she and Julie Andrews sitting on those stools doing a medley of songs became the standard way because it's so incredibly effective, number one. And as you mentioned in the book, because it capitalizes on the strength of television, on what television Correct. can do. And he was such a genius on stage. And I guess also by doing that, by revolutionizing what television could do, you knew that he had his eye on film as well, which he did. The King and I was a very big break doing the film of that. And that probably would not have happened. I can't imagine Fox would have hired him. And then West Side. Yeah. Don't go away. Mary and Ethel and Stephen and I will be back with more Broadway Nation right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today! 
the peripheral characters, some of the people like Leland Hayward, are names that we know in the history of Broadway, but certainly not figures that we know at all well or could, I'm speaking for myself here, but I think that we don't have a sense of who they were, what their voice was, what their personalities were. Leland Hayward does not come off as the greatest guy in your book. So what I'm curious about is how you researched that. What was your experience? How did you get into those characters? Mary and Ethel, it's easier to understand. Mm -hmm. We all have Ethel Merman's voice in our head to some extent, not to the extent that you do. But when you're dealing with a lot of the supporting characters, what was your experience with them and how did you find them? I'm very well read when it comes to these people and history. And Leland Hayward's always fascinated me. You know, started out as an agent, had very prominent marriages. Then he wound up producing these musicals. And some of them, when you think about it, Call Me Madam South Pacific are rival musicals. Certainly The Sound of Music and Gypsy are rival musicals. Uh, right. The same season. He had a way of working with these people. He, in fact, for the Ford 50th anniversary show, you know, told each of the stars that they would be the star and the other would be just a guest who would come on and sing with them. And they each believed him until they compared notes. But I found him fascinating. He was a gentleman. He was from Hollywood. He wound up on Broadway. He had done it all. I've read his wives' books. <laughs> he was also part of that whole clan with the Fondas. It's all kind of in that area. So he was a lot of fun to imagine. The voice, well, I've seen a couple of interviews. I think there was a person-to-person, -person, which I watched, and I just see everything I can see and read everything I can read. So he was interesting to write about. The easier ones would have been Rogers, Richard Rogers, Irving Berlin, when they go to the run-through of Gypsy, people like that. Josh Logan, who fascinates me as a director, and I've spoken to many people, and especially Anita Gillette, who, by the way, does the audiobook of this and brilliantly. She loves to tell me stories about her two shows with Josh Logan, Back to Back, All American and Mr. President. And so I kind of have a sense of who he was as well. And that was fun to write about. I almost wanted more, more of those people. <laughs> but I did write chapters that got cut later on. There was more Josh Logan. After Ethel died, there was an auction at Christie's of all of her stuff. That was in her will. And I went to that and I went to the men's room and I stood next to Josh Logan, who had just lost a bid for a cup that he gave Ethel in 1939, a loving cup that said to Miss Sarah Bernhardt, Ethel Merman, and he didn't get the bid. And I thought, wow. I wanted to say something. I said nothing. You know, we were just going to the bathroom. That was a chapter I was starting to work on, too. Once Mikey came in, it wasn't as important. Who else? My favorite other peripheral characters were Ethel's friends, who I did know. Maria Carnilova, who she brought to my house, the great dancer and actress who did Tessie Tora and Golden Fiddler, and she was a delight. Her best friend, Benet Venuda, was fun to write about because I knew her. The stuff about the Campari is, is true. I did not know Dorothy Fields, but I certainly have researched her, and I knew what kind of pals they were. I love the idea that she had those kind of pals. She used to say to me, well, I'm meeting my real friends today. And those were her old secretary friends. And she stuck to those women forever. And Mary had her old friends in Dallas that she still stuck to and used their names in her shows. So I thought that was interesting that they, they both had real roots that they could then draw from instead of just being these big stars, which would have been too easy. And then there was Richard Halliday. And talk about him. I, of course, knew about Richard Halliday, but I did not quite know about the problems that he had in his life. And not so late 
in his life, actually. He started having serious substance abuse problems, and I didn't realize that was tied to their living in Brazil. Talk a little bit about that. What's the reality behind that? Well, the reality is that they had a lavender marriage, as they like to call it. Uh, There was no doubt that they loved each other, and they tried, as couples did in the 1940s. My goodness, she did have a child by him. But there was no doubt that he went his way and she went her way in many times. But it was very, very discreet. I think that took its toll on Richard, who did have a drinking problem, and that progressed even more so. When I was watching the 1960 Tonys, which luckily for us exists, I noticed he was missing. And I thought, where is Mr. Mary Martin? Where is the producer of The Sound of Music, which just won Best Musical? And I did some research in a couple of other books and found out exactly where he was, and he was in Payne Whitney being treated for his alcoholism. And so I was able to then use that in these sequences, which almost become phantasmagorical because Mikey is stuck with him. He goes there on errands and deals with him. And then ultimately at the end of the book, it's Richard from Brazil who helps Mikey get back to his own time. He gives him a way back. He has to get back into the Imperial. I brought him full circle and I also felt I just wanted to show that there was a love no matter what. And there was, and he was the president of Mary Martin, Inc. But without the president, I don't think she would have gotten back to Broadway, become Venus, become Nellie Forbush, especially not Annie Oakley, amazingly, and Peter Pan. He produced those shows. We can't forget that either. And when he did produce The Sound of Music, Rodgers and Hammerstein get top billing, of course, for producing it. But they sat back and let Leland Hayward and Richard Halliday do the producing. They put their name on it. They wrote the score. They didn't do the legwork as much. He was somebody. And now I hear from people all the time who knew both Mary and Richard and said that he was so kind to them. He would help them in their careers in the 60s. But ultimately, when she got ill during the tour of I Do, I Do in 68, it seemed like the best idea to literally move to Brazil for a while and get him out of the public eye also because he was starting to pop up in columns as being drunk somewhere or worse. She did herself a favor, did him a favor. I recently, by the way, this summer, I was in Dallas doing a new show and I thought I have never made the pilgrimage to Weatherford, Texas. So I did it. And I found their graves. There's a little marked off section for her parents and Richard went in first, Richard Halliday, and then she went in second on top of them. I think they're both ashes. It's such a loving inscription and how her heart will always belong to him. And I think whatever really happened, she believed it. She did love him. And you know, that can happen. And she had the rest of her life. And so did he. So I thought they were a fascinating couple. And there were so many like that. Porter and who else? Oliver Soden's new book about Noel Coward. I don't know if you've read that, but he talks very movingly about those kinds of marriages and how many people in that era had those relationships that were really strong, loving relationships. And yet no one had any illusions about what was going on in those marriages. Right. But they worked in their own but way. But some did. You know, I, Ethel certainly knew. About, yeah, yeah. Yes, Ethel certainly knew about Mary. And at that great event in 1977, after the show, Mary was met at the stage door by the great producer Cheryl Crawford, who had produced One Touch of Venus and Jenny for her. And Ethel turned to her friend Bob Gardner. I was standing there. And she said, oh, you think Mary will get lucky tonight? And I thought, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> she joked about it, and uh, yeah. Yeah. I 
I'm sure Mary wouldn't have been pleased to hear that, though. Now that you've written the book, the book's out, you're publicizing it. Is there anything that you didn't realize was in the book that you're hearing is in the book or that people's reaction to it that's surprising you? Oh, that's a very good question. The idea that Mikey is a stand-in for all of the kids that went to Broadway at 10 years old and found their happiness in theater, that part seems to be baked in and I didn't really bake it. But it's it's there. The idea that theater and musical theater especially can be so restorative, can be the thing that helps you through life. And I think the sequence that I like the best is when Mikey goes to 1970 and sees his 12-year-old self in the Brooklyn Public Library looking through stacks of theater worlds and realizes this lonely kid is him and that he has to get through this time when he finds out that his father is ill and might die. And by bringing them together and making theater be the conduit, and especially Hello, Dolly, they get to go to that fabulous performance when Hello, Dolly became the longest running musical ever. It didn't last long because Fiddler beat it soon after, but Ethel Merman made it happen. She who turned down the original show, she said, I didn't open Dolly, but I closed it and wound up extending it long enough so that it could become the longest running musical and having Mikey and his father be part of that and have house seats. It changes both their lives, but especially Mikey, who now watching how he helped his younger self can grow up at 25 when he goes home and get out of that basement and basically get out of being just a fan and start living his his life, as Dolly does. We all go to see Hello, Dolly, and what do you really cry at? You cry at put on your Sunday clothes because it's so heartwarming to think I could get out there. Before the parade passes by, great, wonderful. But it's more about living your life. That's what the play is about, you know, spending a wonderful day. A day well spent was the original play. Exactly. And Mikey learning that is able to then go back to his own time, have one more chance to talk to Merman, and by the way, that last scene really did happen in the next to last chapter. First you have me high, then you have me low. Really did happen to me. And when I went to visit her, I walked into that room and I did bring her flowers. And I said, oh, Ethel, I, I forgot. Maybe you're allergic to flowers. And she said, doesn't matter. No more singing. And my heart broke. But then when I brought up the song that I had just watched on an old tape from the movie Strike Me Pink, first you have me high, then you have me low, she brightened up and suddenly opened her mouth and sang as if it was 1936. And even she was shocked. So I had this great moment because when I left, I knew I would never see her again. I went to the funeral a few months later and I told several of her biographers when they talked to me about her and not one of them used it. And I thought, oh, it's time. (laughs) I don't know if they believed me. I don't know if they thought it was pertinent to put in their books, but I thought this scene was so amazing to me. And as we know, even though she had had a stroke and it was a brain tumor, there are different parts of your brain and singing is a different place. And I think no one had asked her to sing in the months that she just sat there in front of a television set. She did. And she did it for me and I couldn't be happier about that. 
what an amazing memory. And you had that going into the book. That story was, I assume, first and foremost in your mind. Yes, I knew it would be a climax. Even before I knew that Mikey would meet himself and his family, I knew that that would be the climax towards the end of the book. And I didn't want to end it too sadly, of course, because then he does, in fact, leave and go back to his basement apartment where he finds all his bags are packed already. Once again, the Alice in Wonderland factor. Who did that? And then there's one tiny twist at the very end, which I thought opens me up for a sequel. <laughs> and let's not give it all away. Won't give it away. Won't give it away. <laughs> but I think we'd certainly look forward to a sequel to Mikey's return to the past, if that's where he's headed. Good question. I, I really <laughs> I really don't know, but I had such a good time inventing him and out of some of me and out of almost every, every fan who loves musicals. That's your audience, I know. It's what do we live for? It isn't applause. It's the other thing. It's that joy of sitting there and watching put on your Sunday clothes and loving what musicals were. I feel that unfortunately for Mikey and maybe for some of us, the past is the place to go. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah, I think we're all chasing that musical comedy high, I sometimes call it, or musical theater high, that experience that you get sitting in that audience that you just can't ever forget. And it's why we can remember so vividly, and I've talked about this in another podcast, things we saw 50 years ago, 40 years For ago, sure. 30 years ago. And in a way, the what else do you remember from that same year or that same day? Nothing. It's ex exactly true. I mean, I can remember. My first show was Hello, Dolly. I saw it with Betty Grable. Then when I got to see the Bette Midler production, it was almost literally 50 years later. Shockingly to me, I wasn't born yet. <laughs> but I, but I was- possible. Yeah, it couldn't be possible. But that day does stay in my mind. And especially when I saw the Hello, Dolly number, I could not believe that was really happening live for me. I only knew movies at that time. It changed my life. I always say, and my mother was very funny. She took me to that show and she paid $3 to get us into that show. She knew it changed my life. I became an actor. I became a writer. I did whatever I could in show business. And years later, we were walking by the St. James and she said, look at that. I wish I took you to a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> And well, sometimes I think so. Yeah, I might have become a doctor. I have to say, after reading this novel, I'm glad she didn't. I'm very happy you went down the path you did. And whether it was exactly Mikey's path or not, to share that experience was really just a great pleasure in reading this book. I highly recommend it. It's been a pleasure to have you today on Broadway Nation to talk about Mary and Ethel and Mikey Who. Thank you, Stephen Cole. Thank you so much, David. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Don't go away because Stephen and I have a special bonus treat in store for you, a segment from the audiobook of Mary and Ethel and Mikey Who, voiced by Broadway star Anita Gillette. From behind stalls three and four came two simultaneous flushes. After a moment, both doors swung open, revealing Ethel and Mary. Come on, commanded Ethel. If we're going to make a grand entrance, we better do some repair work and replaster our foundations. Perched on delicate velvet stools of deep plum, both ladies looked at their faces in the mirror and started with their eyebrows. Ethel, having just returned from Hollywood not that long before, had tweezed most of her natural brows out and replaced them with a delicate Jean Harlow-esque brow that gave her that Tinseltown Tootsie look she wished she could perfect. 
My real German brows keep growing back, and of course the blonde rinse is almost gone. Is yours real? Of course it is, said Mary indignantly. With a little help from Mr. Kenneth's bottle. Mary began that deep, low chuckle, and it spread like wildfire at a merman who guffawed like the queen's stenographer she used to be. The ice was broken. That Mikey kid is pretty smart. I can't believe he's related to Sophie Tucker. I tell you, Ethel, that boy has been a lifesaver to me. He hasn't been around much, but just a little bit he has, well... He, he's made this lonely little mama a little less lonely. You got a kid? Oh, yes, answered Mary with a mixture of pride and regret. Luke. I call him Luke, but his real name is Larry. He, he's almost nine. Ethel gave the young-looking Mary a look. I know, I know. I, I was only 17 when I had him. Mary giggled and confided her embarrassment. <laughs> it's so hillbilly. Are you married? Of course not, but I was back then. You don't think my little boy is a... Well, he's not. My mama takes care of Lukey now. They're waiting for me in Los Angeles. What about you, Ethel? What about me? A paranoid merman snapped. Mary ignored Ethel's outburst and quietly asked, You ever want to have kids? Oh, sure. But I want to be married first. Um... Well, I got the guy, but the guy's not the marrying kind. Why not? His wife won't let him. Ethel's perfect timing made Mary guffaw just as she was applying a new coat of drumstick lipstick. Now you made me ruin my mouth. You are bad, Ethel, just bad. But I have a feeling all those wisecracks cover up a vulnerable woman. And knowing Ethel Merman, well... I can't imagine her standing for a married man. Oh, I don't stand for him. Most of the time, we're lying down. No business, I know. Business, I know. You get word before the show has started. Now, here's the information about how you, too, can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech That's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 